Father, we've been reminded of your love, and that's extended by knowing that you are with us, not only in spirit and and all in our hearts, but in word. Lord, the fact that you've preserved your word for us through the centuries, through thousands of years, for us to live by. So when we read it, we learn more about who you are and what you mean for us. Lord, prepare our hearts now as we listen to your word and may you change us through your word. May it uh, encourage us and help us to live lives that are worthy of your calling, that reflect our lives that may reflect the love you have for all the world so that everyone may know your love. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A reading from 1 Corinthians 8. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, and we are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Um, thank God for the technology we have. Um, I can still uh, share God's word with you this morning. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 8. We're back in this um, wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Looking at this section over the next few weeks from chapters 8 through till uh, the end of chapter 10, the start of chapter 11. Uh, and so I'm um, really looking forward to this, um, but let's um, pray before we dive in. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter. Uh, We pray now that you'll give us um, soft hearts as we hear your word 
and help us to live in the light of your word, we pray, and of your glorious gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you'd finish this sentence. Is it okay for Christians to... Dot, dot, dot. What are your kind of questions? Uh, I typed this into my search engine, and you know how they give you um, all of the top responses? It's these drop-down options that come up as you're typing in. So I, I typed this in, is it okay for Christians too, and left it, and the top response that came up, get acupuncture. So, okay, I didn't realise that. There's a lot of people asking uh, whether it's okay for Christians to get acupuncture. Um, lots of ways, though, you could finish that um, question. Is it okay, you can see there, okay to get a tattoo. Um, is it okay to go down to the pub and enjoy a glass of beer? Uh, is it okay to sign up for yoga to keep your body flexible? Um, maybe a few others that aren't on Google's list, but maybe you've had to wrestle with. Is it okay to enter your workplace sweepstakes for the Melbourne Cup? Or to go and play a game of poker with your friends? Uh, is it okay to dress up on the 31st of October and wander around the streets with friends and eat ridiculous amounts of lollies? Maybe that's something you're wrestling with. Uh, is it okay to eat halal food or go to a Thai restaurant where there's a shrine in the corner? Lots of different questions. And I reckon if we took a poll of our church at the moment, we'd get a pretty wide range of responses for those questions and others like them. It's not a bad question to ask, um, is it okay? Because there are some important areas that the Bible gives us really clear answers on. So if you're ever wondering whether it's okay for Christians to commit adultery, or embezzle money to line their own accounts, or murder someone. Okay. The answer is always, and only ever, no, that's not okay. There's no kind of grey area, no ifs or buts. But a lot of life isn't like that. Um, there are a whole range of moral decisions that we make that are complex and that need wisdom, where there aren't black and white cookie-cutter rules for every situation. And I reckon if you have a feel for those kinds of issues, you'll have some sense of the next question that the Christians in Corinth were wrestling with and that they'd written to the Apostle Paul about. Uh, you can see the issue there uh, down in verse 1. Uh, Paul writes to them in verse 1, Now about food sacrificed to idols. So Corinth was, uh, we saw this when we started looking through this letter, Corinth was a really significant city. Uh, in the Mediterranean region, uh, situated on this narrow land bridge in Greece, uh, which made, meant it was like a major trading city. So people from all over, uh, from all different cultures and religions would be travelling through there. And it was a real melting pot, uh, lots of culture and diversity, but also it meant that it was a deeply religious city. Lots of temples to the various gods of the peoples around. Now this, you should have on the screen, a reconstruction of some of the buildings that archaeologists have uncovered in Corinth itself. And what's interesting is just to notice how many temples there are scattered through just this small area of the city, but also how the markets and the shops are close to and connected to those temples. And that was no accident. The temples, they sort of function like abattoirs. Um, meat was a much more scarce thing than it is for us today. And whatever meat was sold in the markets was more than likely second-hand from the temples. Um, they'd offer their food sacrifice to the gods, and then they'd kind of pass it on to the markets to be sold. 
Uh, it's not only that these temples, not only that, these temples, they kind of functioned like the city's function centres. They had private dining rooms attached to the tem temples. So you want to organise your birthday party, uh, you go down to the local temple and book a room there. <laughs> so it was a real, the religion and, and the economy and society, they're all closely mixed together in a way that's not quite the same in our society today. But that's the situation this is all happening in. And into this city into the city of Corinth, the liberating announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ had come. Now we saw in the first few chapters how the gospel of Christ crucified freed people, freed them from the, the factionalism and pride of Corinth. Or it ought to have, that's why Paul's writing this letter. He wants the gospel to free them from that. Uh, and then in chapters 5 to 7, Jesus freed them from their slavery to sexual immorality. He gave them a brighter and deeper hope and purpose. They had been washed and sanctified and justified. They were not their own. They were bought at a price. They were the Lord's freed people. They were Christ's slaves. And they were also freed from religious slavery, from slavery to the idols of the culture around them. Freedom's a big theme in these next few chapters. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks is the Apostle Paul reflecting on how Christians who are free in Christ, how they should live in a world caught up in the worship of idols. And I think once we see that an idol can actually be anything that takes God's place, anything that grips your heart as the thing that you worship, then these chapters are really going to come alive for us and they're deeply relevant, they're powerful for us. Our culture has its own idols, maybe not made of wood or stone, um, maybe less tangible, but maybe they're idols like money or sex or power. And how we live in the freedom of Christ in a world of idols is a key question for us. So I'm really looking forward to um, digging into that over the next few weeks. For the Corinthians, the is this issue of food that had been sacrificed to idols was like the pointy end of this question. Uh, it seems to have, there seems to have been two camps in this church. Um, though, one camp was saying something like, "Look, we are free in Christ. We're freed from the bondage of legalism. Idols are nothing anyway. We, we've come to know the one true God. Uh, the Jewish scriptures teach this. Um, Jesus declared this. He declared all foods are clean. So it's entirely fine to eat whatever food you like. So dig in. Um, so that's sort of one camp. It seems like there was another camp, though, who was saying something like, but we've been saved out of that world, out of that world of idolatry, and we shouldn't have anything to do with it. And eating that food, more than that, it just kind of feels wrong. It feels wrong. And I feel myself being dragged back into old idolatrous, sinful ways. And I think this is really interesting and very helpful to see what Paul does in helping the Corinthian Christians navigate this issue. He actually agrees with the first group. They have their theology right. They've got the right knowledge. But there's more going on than just that. Sometimes you can be right, but still be wrong. So he writes in verse 1, Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. 
Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Paul's not against knowledge. The Bible's not against knowledge. Uh, Paul writes his letters to help these churches grow in right knowledge. Uh, All through the last few chapters, maybe you remember he's been saying, do you not know? He, He wants the people he's writing to, he wants us to know things. But he is warning against knowledge for its own sake. Knowledge that makes you proud. And so this basic principle that he lays down here is that Knowledge always has to be joined with love. A little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Uh, We can start to think of it as kind of our possession and even as a weapon to win arguments with. And that seems to be what was going on in Corinth with this issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. Uh, Paul says in verse 2, if that's where your knowledge leads you, then actually you don't know. You don't actually know as you ought to know. Well, what is the better way, the more excellent way that Paul tells us about here? And he's going to go on in the great chapter 13 to to settle in and revel in. What's the more excellent way? It's love. Knowledge for its own sake puffs yourself up. It's kind of focused in on the self. But love builds up. It goes out to others for their good. I love that imagery that Paul uses here. It's a much more solid image. To be puffed up is like a balloon, right? A balloon that kind of filled with hot air and can pop at any moment. But to build something up is to make something stable and real and lasting. That's what love does. And I think just to put kind of put the nail in the coffin of their pride, Paul writes something Really unexpected in verse 3. You expect him to say, whoever loves God knows God. But he doesn't say that, does he? Verse 3, whoever loves God is known by God. This kind of says it in passing, uh, but it's really profound. It turns out that the knowledge that really counts is not my impressive knowledge of God. But his knowing of me. And that, brothers and sisters, is wonderful news. That's at the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do, it's about what God has done. That's why it's good news. Um, as the Apostle John puts it, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Maybe you can kind of rephrase that in, from this chapter. Not that we know God, but that he knows us. To be known by God is to be thought of by him, to be in his mind, to be chosen and loved by him. It's to be a receiver of his kindness and forgiveness. He takes the initiative and he gets the glory. God does want us to know him more, to get to know him more by his spirit and through his word. But that knowledge is always grounded in the wonderful underlying prior reality that he knows us. And our knowledge of God is never just for its own sake. We grow to know our loving God more, not so that we can puff ourselves up, but so that we can build 
each other up in love. And I think that's what Paul goes on to underline as he keeps going through this chapter. Uh, he gets to verse 4 and he, he agrees with the right knowledge of these meat eaters in Corinth. Verse 4, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Now the words that you see there in quotes, they're almost certainly things that this group of knowledgeable Corinthians, that they were saying like catchphrases, and they'd written them to Paul. And they are true. They are core truths. They're right and good. But the Corinthians were using these truths in thoughtless and unloving ways. And Paul ex expands on this catchphrase that they were using. And I think he subtly um, expands on it in order to rebuke them and to kind of call them out. He says, but even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Okay, Paul says, your knowledge is right, but let's press in, if, as far as it goes, <laughs> it's correct, but let's press into that a little bit more, a little further. There's no God but one, yes, but who is that one? Uh, in verse 6, he's the Father, the source of all life, and we live for him, not for ourselves. And not only that, Paul, in, as he keeps writing, he gives one of the clearest statements of the divinity of Jesus that you find anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament was clear that there was only one God, one Lord, Yahweh. There might be so, uh, many so-called gods among the nations, but there's no actual reality behind them. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Yahweh, that the Lord, was the creator of the whole earth, and he was the one who was bringing about his salvation plan. Through Abraham's seed. But amazingly here, Paul, he does two things. He, he firmly upholds this truth from the Old Testament. There is only one God. And at the same time, he includes Jesus in that truth. He is the one Lord. He is God in flesh. He is the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. Yahweh come to rescue his people. And so to know the one God isn't just some abstract doctrine you can use to justify eating a nice medium rare steak from the idol temple. To know the one true God is to know Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know the one who is love. The one who, though he was in very nature God, did not grasp hold of his position, but made himself nothing, going to the cross for the sin of his people. And so the rest of the chapter really just flows out of this. A Jesus-shaped love means Paul can be, it means he can be sensitive to the wide range of backgrounds and the levels of maturity and the different experiences of people in this church. Uh, verse 7 he writes, not everyone possesses this knowledge. There are some people for whom this truth about the one God, one Lord, maybe they could sort of, uh, confess it intellectually, but it hadn't sunk down deep into them. They, they were believers in Jesus, in Christ. But 
As you read on, you, you see that they're still accustomed to idols. Uh, the idol worship of their past was still a powerful influence on them. They'd gone to the temple all their life. They'd eaten this food along with bowing down to these idols. And they just couldn't separate the two things. Maybe they understood rationally that, okay, an idol is nothing. But at a, a kind of deep feeling level, when they do eat this food, it takes them back to their old ways and they start thinking of it as being actually sacrificed to an actual God and they're dragged back into idolatry. And Paul's clear in verse 8. He's clear in verse 8 that the food is itself entirely neutral. So this is where he agrees again with these knowledgeable Corinthians. There's absolutely nothing spooky or defiled about any of this food in and of itself. It's just food. But for these people whose conscience is weak, it is defiled. It is defiled for them. So Paul's answer to the question, um, can I eat this food, is, well, it depends. <laughs> uh, if it's against your conscience, then don't eat it. It would be sin for you to do that. But what about, on the other hand, those who do know more, whose conscience is better informed by God's word, who aren't at the same risk of being dragged back into idol worship if they eat this food? Even for them, the answer is, well, it depends. The key question I think Paul wants them to wrestle with is not, what am I allowed to do? But how can I love? That's the key question. And especially for these knowledgeable ones, how can I love those who are struggling with this, who are of weaker conscience? He says in verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Uh, Paul really raises the stakes in verse 11 as he goes on. He says, So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died. That's how they should be viewing them. This weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. This is something to take seriously. To simply insist on your rights because you know your freedom in Christ, it runs the risk of not only destroying a brother or sister, but of sinning against Christ. And so Paul finishes this chapter with really a stunning claim. In verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. It's a no-brainer for Paul. He freely give up his freedoms for the sake of the other. Well, it's a pretty interesting chapter, right? But what do we make of it? How, do, how can we apply this? I think sometimes this passage can be applied wrongly. Uh, it can be applied to say something like, we should, we should just do whatever anyone with a loud opinion tells us to do. So, for a, a silly example, if I was to stand up next week in church and say, look, I just feel really uncomfortable and frankly offended by you men 
not wearing suits to church. Uh, and I would feel a lot more comfortable if you all started dressing up a little. Uh, at that point, I'm not a weaker brother. <laughs> I'm just someone with a strong opinion, trying, and frankly, someone who's trying to emotionally manipulate you. <laughs> Uh, And I really should read the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, to help reframe my thinking about that. So we'll think about that next week. But what we're seeing here in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, it wouldn't apply to that kind of situation. What is in view here is that person who is put in genuine spiritual danger, genuine spiritual danger, because of the thoughtless exercise of your rights, of your freedoms in Christ. Maybe you can think of a whole range of examples where this might apply. Um, uh, I think alcohol is a good example of this. Uh, It's clear in the Bible that though it can be sinfully abused, alcohol is part of God's good creation. Uh, Jesus' first miracle was to make a whole lot of first-class wine. The Lord's Supper involved wine, Uh, When Isaiah looks ahead to the new creation, he pictures a feast where you can come and buy wine without money and without price. So that's a clear biblical truth. But imagine someone comes to church, becomes a Christian, and like many Australians, has a really complicated and unhappy relationship with alcohol. Uh, Perhaps it's past abuse or addiction. It's kind of an idol for them. They're so accustomed to any drink leading to slavery that they just can't separate the two. He's not a legalist. He's not kind of proudly insisting on rules for everyone else. He's a weaker brother. He's someone who just can't drink in good conscience. Someone for whom even one drink might lead to very dark places, might even lead them away from Christ. At which point... A Corinthian might say, come on, man, get with the program. They might even quote scripture at this guy. Look, Psalm 104 says, wine is God's gift to gladden the hearts of men. At which point, the Lord's Apostle Paul would say, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And wouldn't it be better to never drink again if it meant this precious, loved child of God is kept safe and doesn't fall away? It's just one attempt to apply this. Um, I don't want to give kind of um, hard and fast rules because that's not what Paul's doing here. And it could be any number of situations. It's not neat. It's not cookie cutter. But one thing I do want to highlight is that we can only put this into practice as a church if we know each other deeply, if we know one another, if we share with one another our struggles and our weaknesses so that our love for one another can be informed love. We can love each other well. Uh, This is something that will muddle our way through and we're going to get it wrong sometimes. But if we know God, or maybe better, if we are known by him, And if the God who knows us is fully revealed in his Son, then we'll keep persisting in trying to love one another as he has loved us. Uh, Not standing on our rights, not being puffed up by knowledge, but building each other up in love. 
because the wonderful gospel of Jesus leads us to that. That's what our freedom is for. Our freedom in Christ is incredible. It's absolute. It's wonderful. We're free. We're free even from the tyranny of ourself. We're free from the insecure need to puff ourselves up, to kind of inject ourselves into every conversation. We're free from that. And we're free to live in self-giving love. We're free to, to live in that love because of the one who gave himself up for us. So uh, let's pray as we finish. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us, who fully revealed you. Uh, and Lord, we pray that this wonderful right knowledge, that you know us, this incredible reality, uh, might sink deeply into us and transform us so that we might live in love to each other, not puffed up by knowledge, um, but as we know you more and more, to love one another more and more. Help us to do that. Uh, help us to forgive one another when we get it wrong. Help us to share with one another how we can do that well. Uh, and Lord, we pray for your help in all of this. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.